Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Good morning to all of you who are meeting here at Central Campus, as well as those of you watching online, and those of you who are meeting together at one of our regional campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, and at the Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary. Now, those of you who are parents um, or have worked with children, you know the challenges that come when a child enters into the why stage of, its de- of her development or his development, when virtually every conversation is followed with the question, but why, Dad? But why do I have to wear a seatbelt? But, but why do I have to brush my teeth? But why do I have to go to, uh, go to bed? Why do I have to take a bath? The why stage starts at around age three and goes on until the early teens, at which point something washes over their brain and they suddenly know it all. <laughs> and the why questions turn to what? What do you want? What are you looking at? What did I do? While the what stage of a child's life often challenges the sanity of a parent, the why stage often challenges the sincerity or the authenticity of a parent. For example, if your child asks you, you know, why do I need to wear a seatbelt? The answer that you might give is, son, you need to wear a seatbelt so you won't get hurt if we have an accident. And yet, if you think about it, and if you're honest, you may actually be thinking about a different reason, which, if stated out loud, would come out something like this. Well, son, I want you to wear a seatbelt because I don't want to get pulled over by a police officer and get a ticket. Or, son, you need to brush your teeth so that I won't have to buy you dentures before you're old enough to buy your own. (laughs) Or, son, you need to take a bath so that you'll have friends. Or son, you need to go to bed so that your mother and I can recover from the time that you've been awake. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it, how even in the simpler things of life, like communicating to our children, we have to work at being sincere and authentic. The question why gets at the motivation behind our actions and our words. It aims to uncover what it is that makes us do what we do. Well, in the next section in our study in the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus challenges us to wrestle with this question, why? In his sermon, Jesus is describing what the kingdom of God is like. And as you may recall, in the first part of chapter 5, in what we refer to as the Beatitudes, Jesus describes the character and the personalities of people that people in his kingdom will display. Not perfectly, of course, or in their own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through their lives as they surrender their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ on a daily basis. In the second part of chapter 5, Jesus goes even deeper, and he describes the kind of behaviors that spirit-filled kingdom people will manifest. And now we come to chapter 6, where Jesus digs even deeper. He pries open our hearts, and he challenges us to examine our motivations, why it is we do what we do. Now, I want to remind you that everything that Jesus says in this sermon is in order to set us free to be who God made us to be. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves, and he says what he says to make us whole and complete. Jesus wants us to know and to experience God, to see God's power at work in and through our lives. And he knows that that is not going to happen if we play church and just keep going through the motions of our religion, as it were, or if our driving motivation in life is to receive the adoration of others rather than to give 
the glory and the adoration to God. And so here in chapter 6, he teaches us how to continue to be real. To live authentic lives. So would you stand and join me in reading our scripture lesson today? Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word and how it instructs us in the way to live the life you've given to us. Lord, already our hearts have been penetrated by these words. Already we find ourselves asking questions about our motivations. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts right now and soften our hearts to receive what it is you want to teach us, and you give us the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to, for I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as I said a moment ago, Jesus' concern in this passage is that we live authentic Christian lives, that we don't live lives of hypocrisy, but that we would be real, we'd be authentic in our walk with God. And toward that end, he gives three keys or principles for keeping our walk with God real. The first is beware of impure motives. The second is serve in secret. And the third is seek first God's ultimate reward. So let's unpack these a little bit, shall we? The first key to keeping our walk with God real is to beware of impure motives. In the passage we just read, Jesus warns that we can do good deeds with less than pure motives. We can do acts of righteousness, not for the pleasure of God, not even for the good of others, but to receive admiration and recognition from others. And to help us to understand how unholy motivations or hypocrisy has a way of creeping into our lives, Jesus gives three examples, three spiritual disciplines actually, giving, praying, and fasting. These three spiritual disciplines are actually foundational disciplines in almost all of the world religions. In Jesus' day, the Jewish religious leaders considered these the three most important demonstrations of spiritual devotion. And Jesus noticed that they were using these virtues for their own personal glorification. Now make no mistake, if you had asked a typical Jew in the day of Jesus what they thought of the Pharisees, he would have said to you, oh my, 
They're spiritual giants. They're our role models. I mean, they are incredibly devoted. They're always giving. They're always praying and fasting. And yet Jesus saw the true motivation of their hearts. And that is why he refers to them as hypocrites. They were actors. They were pretending to be something on the outside that did not align who they really were on the inside. They were just going through the motions of their faith. It wasn't real. They appeared to be humble externally, but they were filled with pride internally. They appeared to be devoted to God and wanting to give God all the glory externally, but internally, they were passionately devoted to themselves. They were passionately in love with themselves and receiving all the glory. And in verse 2, Jesus says, when you give... Don't give the way these religious leaders do. When a Pharisee saw a poor person by the side of the road, he would give, but not without a lot of fanfare. If he lived today, the first thing that he would do is hire a band to draw a crowd. And once there was a good crowd, he would walk up to a needy person and he'd say, you know, I'd love to help meet your need. And then he'd pull out one of those big oversized checks, you know, that you see a lot on TV these days. They're about two feet by about 10 feet. And he'd make sure that emblazoned across that check in bold letters would be his name and also the amount. And he would hand that check for all to admire to this poor individual. And as he does so, the people begin to clap and say, my, what generosity. And Jesus says it's an act. He's not really giving. He's actually receiving. He's feeding on your applause and that's what has motivated him to give in the first place. If there was no personal gain attached with this act of generosity, he probably wouldn't give at all. In verse 3, Jesus says, don't give like that. Instead, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so your giving may be in secret. Now, that raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? I mean, one of the questions is, does that mean that it's wrong to, to give openly? Must all giving be anonymous? Not necessarily. One of the reasons I say that is because Acts 4.34, in, in for example, everyone in the early church knew that Barnabas had, had sold his land and given the money from that sale to the church. When members of the early church laid their money at the apostles' feet, it was not done in secret. Now, on the other hand, we also read in Acts chapter 5 about another couple who sold their land and gave money from the sale of that land to the church. But in this case, God was not pleased with them giving it openly. And the reason is, is because they did it with wrong motives. They said they gave all the money they got from the sale of the land to the church, when in fact they only gave a portion of it. But you see, they lied because they wanted people to think that they were more spiritual than they really were. And God wasn't pleased. He wasn't pleased at all. When Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, he's saying, when you give, don't dwell on what a terrific, dedicated person you are. Don't spend a lot of time patting yourself on your back for your generosity or trying to figure out ways that you can kind of you know, do some fishing and figure out ways to let other people know about how generous you are and what you did and what you gave. If you can't resist doing that, then plan to give in secret. 
On the other hand, Jesus would have no problem with you sharing with someone else or perhaps with your small group or even with the entire church how God has changed your heart, how God has challenged you to trust him more by being more generous with what he's given to you. Providing that you can do so, not to exalt yourself, but to give glory to God and to encourage others with their faith. Now, how can I say that? Well, because if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says something that seems almost contradictory to what he's saying here in Matthew chapter 6. Here's what he says. I'll just read a portion of it. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, Jesus has no problem with other people seeing our good deeds or even hearing about them. His concern is that our motive not be self-serving, but rather to glorify God in heaven. Notice he says that they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify you? No. That they may glorify your Father in heaven. If we need to get the glory, then we need to give in secret. Because our spiritual life will be corrupted if we don't give in secret. Then in verse 5, Jesus talks about prayer and how not to pray. Now, it was customary for a devout Jew to stop and to pray three specific times during the day, at 9 in the morning, at noon, and also at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. When the prayer hour struck, they would drop what they were doing and they would pray. Now, the religious leaders, they put on a new twist on this as well in order to draw attention to themselves. And so at the appropriate times, they would locate themselves in the busiest places so that hundreds of people would notice how they stopped and how they prayed. And at the right time, they would begin praying, you know, with that special stage voice, Oh God, we beseech you today. And they would get louder. And they would get more intense as they continued to pray. They appeared to be praying to God, but in reality, they were praying to impress the people around them. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not condemning public prayer, nor is he condemning individual prayer in a public place. Because we find many examples of public praying in the Bible. What Jesus is condemning in this passage is doing that in order to gain the recognition of other people. Jesus says that's hypocrisy. You pretend to be praying to God when in fact all you're doing is reciting words in the form of a prayer to impress your fellow man. So that causes us to sort of ask ourselves, have I ever prayed out loud in front of others and while doing so found myself concerned what others might be thinking of my choice of words? Now, I've never been guilty of that. Uh, you know, I'm just sharing that with you for your benefit. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The truth is, on more than one occasion, I've caught myself doing just that. Concerned about how my prayer was coming across to people rather than just being real, focusing on the Lord and just sharing my heart with Him. I mean, have you ever wondered why some of us get nervous and break out in a cold sweat when we're asked to pray in a group or even just with two or three others there? What's behind that? I mean, surely it isn't because we're afraid that God's going to get really angry with us because we pray badly. Isn't it because we're afraid of what others 
will think of our praying? And if so, what does that say about the motivation and the focus of our prayers? Is it on God or is it on somebody else? In verse 6, Jesus says, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. He's saying most of your praying needs to happen this way. It's as if the Father is beckoning to us and he's saying to us, come away alone with me and shut the door. Forget about other people. Forget about trying to impress other people for a while. And just have a conversation with me. Just listen to me. In verse 7 he says, and when you do pray... Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Jesus says here, don't pray longer because you think in doing so, you're going to get the answer that you want. Jesus is not impressed with the amount of our words. He's impressed with the sincerity of our heart. Based on what he says here in verse 7, he's much more open to shorter public prayers that come from a sincere heart than he is long prayers that are repetitious, that tell him things he already knows, and that come from a divided, self-centered heart. And then in verse 16, Jesus talks about fasting. This is where some of the best acting took place in that day. You see, once a year on the Day of Atonement, every Israeli man, woman, and child um, would fast. And that particular fast was attached to repentance and was intended to be an outward expression of an inward mourning for sin. Now, even though this was the only compulsory fast that was required of uh, the Israelis um, on a regular basis, the religious leaders fasted regularly. And when they did, they put on an Oscar-winning performance. Historians tell us that when they fasted, they would wear old clothes, which had been purposefully soiled and faded and torn you know, like the, 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 the beat up, chewed up, and spit out pair of jeans that you buy today for $200? <laughs> and so they put on, you know, one of those jeans. And along with these worn out clothes, they would cover themselves with ashes or dirt so as to really pronounce their sense of mourning. And some would even use powder on their faces to accentuate their paleness. And again, the general public bought it all. They said, oh my, what devotion. And Jesus, seeing the motivation of their heart, says, you hypocrites, you actors. I suppose a good analogy would be the Christian who goes out of his way to look worn out for his sacrificial devotion to God, walks around looking quite somber, hoping someone will ask how he's doing so he can go on and on and on about all the sacrifices he's making for Jesus and the cross that he's carrying for Jesus. Pastor Steve Zeisler, he tells of a time that he spent the better part of a day helping some folks in his neighborhood repair their home. The work involved demolition and dust, and so he was wearing old clothes. He came home about 30 minutes before a scheduled meeting that was to happen in his home with some of the leaders of the church. And he had enough time to change his clothes and take a shower, but for just a moment, he thought about leaving on those old, dirty clothes, thinking that, others, that the other church leaders would see his dirty clothes and they would ask what he was doing which, of course, would open the door to explain to them how sacrificial, thoughtful, and helpful he'd been to one of his neighbors. 
Now, he didn't do that, of course. But that is the heart issue that Jesus is getting at here. Doing things in such a way that we get credit for it among people. Now, I want you to notice in verse 2, in verse 5, and in verse 16, there are certain phrases that are repeated in each instance. Jesus says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, but you do it in order to be noticed by others, you will have received your reward in full. Enjoy it, because that's the only reward that you will receive. If you give to be seen and admired by others, Jesus says, consider it paid in full. If you pray so that others will admire how spiritual, how devoted you are, that's the end of it. It's been paid in full. If I preach so people will be impressed with me and my spiritual insights, that's the end of it. I've been paid in full. There will be no reward for me in heaven. If I serve others sacrificially so people will be impressed with my devotion to God and to his call, Jesus says, you have your reward. It's paid in full. So let me bring this right home to where we are at today. I just want to ask you three questions for you to reflect on and allow the Holy Spirit to perhaps expose any motivations that perhaps need to be reexamined. The first question is this, to what degree is your desire to live for God and to serve Him dependent on you receiving the recognition of those around you? Would you say, you know, Pastor, I am so convinced that God loves me and that my identity is found in Him that I don't need much encouragement from others to keep doing what He's called me to do. Oh, I appreciate it when, you know, I receive encouragement, but... It's not going to upset me. It's not going to threaten. Uh, I'm not going to threaten to quit if I don't receive a pat on the back all the time. Does that describe you? Or are you on the other end of the motivation continuum and you're saying, you know, as I think about it, when encouragement stops, I begin to stop. What is the source of your motivation? And question number two, to what degree are you drawn to positions in the spotlight? Let's say you love playing guitar. You love using it to lead others in worship. How open are you to using that gift to lead worship in one of our small groups or in one of our home churches? How open are you to using that gift to lead one of worship in one of our youth supergroups or one of our children's small groups during our weekend services. I'm not suggesting that you'll never be able to play or you'll never be able to sing on the big stage as it were, but the deeper question is, which is the greater desire? To worship God and to lead others in worship or is it actually to be noticed by the masses? Jesus says, beware of impure motives. Will you serve in relative obscurity or in obscurity altogether? Or in order for you to be fulfilled, do you have to be in the spotlight? And question number three, do you find yourself more motivated to practice righteousness when you know someone is watching? Do you find yourself more inclined to be generous or to go the extra mile to sacrifice when you know that someone is going to notice? Someone's going to be made aware of your generosity? Now you say, are you telling me, Pastor, if I get noticed by others that I lose my reward in heaven? Not at all. The issue is not whether other people see your good deeds. It's whether you intend for them to see them. 
The first key to keeping our walk with God real is to beware of impure motives. Another key is to serve in secret. The idea of serving in secret is woven all the way through this passage. We've already referred to it. But I want to just highlight this because Jesus knows that when we choose to serve in secret, we're breaking the grip, the pride, the desire to be noticed in our lives. And thereby, we're keeping our walk with God real. So purify your motives by serving in secret. If money has a grip on you, choose to give some away anonymously. If you are drawn to the spotlight and to the big stage, choose to serve in relative obscurity for a time. If you want to break the grip of the desire to be noticed, spend some time behind the scenes joining hundreds of others in this church who day in and day out are working behind the scenes. Join others in our church nursery. Hold a crying baby for an hour or so. Work in the church kitchen. Join the cleanup crew or help our compassion ministry in delivering furniture or food to the less fortunate or join some of our ministry teams who are ministering in prisons or the hurting in the poor downtown or the new Canadians at our friendship center. Friends, when was the last time we practiced some righteousness and we kept it a secret? We did it in relative obscurity. You see, in the same way that giving till it hurts has a way of breaking the grip of our greed, so serving in secret will break the grip on our desire to be noticed. Jesus says it's a beautiful and effective way to purify our motives and to keep our walk with God real. Finally, a third key to keeping our walk with God real is to seek first God's ultimate reward. Let's face it, we all want to be noticed. We want to be appreciated. We want to have significance and to receive recognition for something good that we've accomplished. Is that desire wrong? It definitely gets all distorted and twisted up, but fundamentally, it is not wrong to want attention or affirmation. We're made this way. Daryl Johnson points out that one of the common expressions of a child to his parent is, watch me. You see a child on stage during a Christmas production or whatever, that child has eyes for only two people or one person, a parent. They're parents. Watch me. The desire to be noticed is not only a product of the fall of man, but it is also the result of being created in the image of God. The issue is not wanting to be noticed or appreciated. The issue is who we want to be noticed by. Jesus challenges us to seek the smile of only one person, of only one audience, and that is our Heavenly Father. God longs to be the object of our highest affection. In the same way that a husband longs to be the object of his wife's affection. I mean, wives, how would you feel if you found out, if you could somehow see the motivation of your husband's heart and learn that your husband married, did not marry you for who you are, but he married you for your money? Wouldn't that devastate you? Or husbands, how would you feel if you could see the motivation of your wife's heart 
and that your wife was working out and getting into shape and making herself look pretty every day to impress another guy, not you. Wouldn't that be devastating? This is why Jesus messes with our motivation here. You see, God's a jealous God. He wants you all to himself, not because he's insecure, but because we were made to worship him and him alone. And if we worship someone or something other than him, we will not only miss his best for us, but one day we're going to face deep despair when we realize that the counterfeit gods that we've been giving our life to, they didn't come through for us. And most tragic of all, we will miss out on God's ultimate reward. So let's talk about rewards for a minute. You know, many people think that authentic Christianity has nothing to do with rewards. That we should serve Jesus without thought of reward. And in a sense, that's true. I mean, receiving heavenly reward should not be our primary motivation for serving God. We should do so because we love God. And yet Jesus speaks often of heavenly rewards. And not only in the passage we're looking at today, but all the way through the Gospels, he promises rewards to those who serve God with pure motives. One day when we get to heaven, we're going to receive heavenly rewards that come from the hand of our loving Father, and they will be amazing. But what we need to see here is that Jesus has a much greater reward in mind than just the heavenly rewards that we're going to receive one day. As I studied this passage, I found myself saying, Jesus, why is it so important that my motives be pure? I mean, why are you hung up? We're human. We're going to have mixed motives. Why is this so important? And what came to mind was the sixth beatitude. Remember what the sixth beatitude says? Blessed. Blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart. To be pure in heart means to do one thing. The pure in heart are about one thing. They're focused on one pursuit and one pursuit only, the pursuit of God. And those who pursue God only are blessed. To have a pure heart means not coming to God with divided loyalties. That's what James means when he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now this is instructive to us in light of our study here in Matthew 6. Because if a pure heart worships one thing, then an impure heart or a heart that has impure motives is a heart that worships more than one thing. The pure heart doesn't have a compartment for God, another one for your career, and another one for family and friends. No, God is at the center of all of them. When you have a pure heart, you don't think about God and his agenda only at mealtime or during worship services like this. No, you are consciously aware of his presence all day. You're listening to his voice. You're including him in all aspects of your life. Many people say they love Jesus and want to give their lives to his kingdom causes. But the truth be told, they also want to advance their own kingdom. They would never say it out loud, but Jesus isn't enough for them. Because they're obsessed with finding their significance from other people, with impressing others with their accomplishments instead of finding their identity in Jesus Christ and seeking to honor and to please Him alone. And so in order to receive the accolades of others, they give their lives to advancing their kingdom and at the same time they're trying to live for the kingdom of God and in the end result is a divided heart and a harried and a hurried life and a deeply dissatisfaction dissatisfying life, I might add. Jesus says, you can't have a divided heart. That's fundamentally what a heart with impure motives is. It's a divided heart. 
It's trying to go in two directions at the same time. He says, you can't serve two masters. And folks, this is true. This is the crux of Jesus' concern in the passage we're looking at today. He's saying, as long as you're trying to serve the kingdom of God and the kingdom of you at the same time, you're going to miss the ultimate reward that God wants to give you. So what is that ultimate reward that he offers us? Well, look at the sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart for what? They will see God. The greatest reward that God offers us that we are to seek first in life is the gift of himself. The reward is to be with the Father, to be at the Father's side in this life and the next. One day, the pure in heart, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, those who have had their hearts cleansed and their lives and their passions forever transformed by the love and the grace of God, they will see God face to face. What a day of rejoicing that will be. But the pure in heart will also see God now. We know from what God told Moses in Exodus 33 that we will not see God face to face in this life, but we will experience God in all of his fullness and all that he has for us in this life. When your heart is pure, not perfect, but surrendered and committed to worshiping God and God alone, you will see God everywhere. You will see his handiwork in creation. You will hear his whispers when you read and you meditate on the scriptures. You will experience his power at work in and through your life. You will experience his joy and his peace in your life. At times you will feel his presence in such a real and a powerful way. During times of your personal worship or corporate worship experience, you will feel like you could just reach out and touch him. When I see the power of Jesus set people free from demonic oppression, I see God. When I see people physically healed or hurting marriages restored through the power and the love of Jesus, I see God. When I see addicted people, angry people, people in despair, radically transformed by the love and the grace of Jesus, I see God. When I need wisdom and I cry out to God for his help and then receive an insight or an idea or a creative thought that I, I never even thought of before, I see him. When I see our grandchildren barely old enough to walk, pray for their loved ones or cry out in worship with raised hands, praise the Lord. I see God. When I see someone enduring hardship and pain day after day, facing one setback after another and refusing to be bitter about their circumstances, but to continue to love God and to celebrate His goodness in their life, I see God. Friends, do you understand now why Jesus pries open our hearts here in Matthew 6 and warns us about having impure hearts, impure motives? Because we will not see God. We won't know Him. He knows that those who have a divided heart, those who attempt to serve two masters, those who try to worship two kingdoms will miss the ultimate reward of knowing God, of hearing God, of friendship with God. Jesus says, if you want to keep your walk with God real, beware of impure motives. Serve in secret. 
and seek first God's ultimate reward, the gift of himself. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who worship an audience of one, for they shall see God. I'll close with this. Stephen Covey, author of the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he says one way to determine what to give your life to is to imagine attending your own funeral and asking yourself, what would you like other people to say about you as a person, as a spouse, as a parent? He says, whatever you would like to be remembered for, make that the focus of your life. If you want to be remembered as a generous person, then be a generous person now. If you would like to be remembered as a kind person, then be a kind person now. Now, Covey makes a good point, but he misses the most important point. On the basis of Matthew 16, 26, Jesus would say to him, Stephen, what does it profit a man if he gains the applause of the whole world? If all kinds of people adore him, and say wonderful things about him at his funeral. And yet throughout his life, he's given no thought to God and to serving God. And in the end, he loses his soul. Or what does it profit a person if all kinds of people adore them for all of the wonderful things that they have done for God as a Christian? But in their heart, they did it for the applause of people rather than the applause of God. And they hardly know God at all. Folks, in this passage, Jesus is warning us about living for lesser things. He's warning us that one day we're going to experience profound regret if, one thing, if the one thing we live for is the approval and the applause of others. The truth is when it's all said and done, the wonderful things may be said about us. But we will have missed knowing and experiencing friendship with God. And that will be an incredible tragedy. I ask you as you examine your heart and the motives of your heart, what are you giving your life to? Are you giving your life to the kingdom of God? Or are you giving your life to the kingdom of you? Blessed are the pure in heart, those who do one thing. For they will see God in this life and in the life to come. May it be so. To the glory of God and for the sake of those who need Jesus, the Jesus that we know and love, would you please stand for closing prayer? Before I pray, I just want you to take a moment right now and respond to whatever it is that God has been speaking to you about. If you long for a pure heart, then ask for it the way that David did in Psalm 51. Ask God to cleanse and to purify your heart because that's something that only the Lord can do. If you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to invade your life and to cleanse you from the inside out, to transform you, invite him to do that right now. Just take a moment and talk to the Lord.
Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. We have read and heard a profound truth from your word today that shakes us to our core once again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Lord, we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face in glory. But we also want to see you now. And we know that a heart that's filled with impure motives, a heart with divided loyalties, a heart that is not seeking you first, will not see you as you really are, will not hear you, will not experience fully your power, your your life-transforming power. And Lord, that is tragic. And so I ask that you would create in us a desire and then a passion to do one thing, and that is to seek you and you alone and your kingdom with all of our heart. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.